Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. So the real question is, and if you are a Sound of Music fan out there, it's how do you solve a problem like George Santos? He's only sworn in a few days ago, but the Republican congressman who lied about, well, where he worked, where he went to school, about being Jewish. Remember when he said what he meant was Jew-ish? Well, now he's in hot water with members of his own party back in New York State. I'll talk to two New York Republicans who are now calling for him to resign. But as the chorus for calls for him to step down get much, much louder, well, the congressman is trying to shut it down by saying this. I will not. He will not. Well... There's also another batch of classified government records found by President Joe Biden's legal team. That's after the initial discovery of those classified documents at his one-time office in Washington back in November. So where were these new documents found and what's in them? And frankly, how long have they known about this set of documents as well? Plus, Republican tragedist alleges powerful conservative Matt Schlepp sexually assaulted him while he was driving him back to an Atlanta hotel several weeks before the November midterm election. Now, Schlapp, through his attorney, denies this claim. We'll have the very latest on this developing story this evening. A lot to talk about tonight, so I want to bring in and begin with the calls for George Santos to resign his seat in Congress. And those calls are coming from inside the proverbial house, including from my next two guests, who are both New York State Republican lawmakers, State Senator Jack Martins and State Assemblyman Ed Ra. Gentlemen, welcome to the program this evening. Listen, everyone has been talking about Congressman now, George Santos. He, of course, has been sworn in. He is a member of the House of Representatives. But both of you have been calling for him to resign. And so far, he says he will not. Um, State Senator Jack Martins, I wonder from your perspective initially, and I want to hear from both of you, what if he continues to defy the calls to resign? What do you have to force him to do anything? Well, look, we have the will of the people. I know that there are investigations, not only criminal investigations here in New York, there are federal investigations, and I understand that there was an ethics complaint filed against him today. So there are multiple avenues um, where Santos will be called to task. Uh, and I do believe at least one of those will be successful. Assemblyman Ra, if he does not willingly resign, though, many are wondering, is there something that you can do, either at the state side or the federal side, obviously, to try to oust him from his seat? Well, I, I think, um, you know, Congress, as they undertake an internal investigation with the ethics complaint. Uh, I know they have some procedures for that, but I think, you know, as time goes on here, uh, I would hope that George Santos starts to realize that it's just not possible for him to be an effective representation, representative of, of his district with this hanging over his head uh, and, and without the trust of the constituents and without the trust of his colleagues in Congress. It is quite a cloud. That's undeniable. But I want to stick with you for a second, Assemblyman Ra, on that. You actually campaigned with him, I understand. And I'm wondering, during those conversations you undoubtedly had, did you sense any red flags? Were there moments where you thought, hmm, something's not adding up? Or was he able to really be as effective as he seems to have been to pull the wool over everyone's eyes? No, I mean, you know, I 
had been out at you know street fairs and community events and things like that uh, with George. And yeah, not, nothing really that ever raised any uh, red flags. You know, he's a friendly guy, uh, happy most of the time, and you know, nothing really uh, tripped any alarms. Uh, so I, you know, I was as shocked as as many others were uh, when these allegations all came to light, and he turned out to be uh, you know largely fraud. Say, Senator Martin, there are um, rumored favorites out there in the event that Santos does decide to resign from Congress, although this evening he is saying he will not. We all know that things can change and pressure campaigns have a way of incentivizing one's departure. Whether it happens here or not, I don't know. But if you are one of these rumored favorites, which I hear you are, would you consider trying to have and hold that spot? Well, Laura, thank you. Um you know, that's a conversation we'll have at a later date. It's certainly a conversation I have to have with, with my wife and my children. Um, big commitment going to Washington, but I am focused right now on my constituents, uh, representing the 7th Senate District in New York, and um, will certainly uh, be willing to have that conversation later uh, when that time comes up. Uh, but frankly, uh, a lot has to happen between now and then. A lot. And of course, he would have to vacate that particular office in some respect. Um, Assemblyman Roth, there was a press conference today. And at that press conference, we learned that constituent calls in Santos's district, the actual calls are coming from the average person, are going to be redirected, not to anyone in Washington, D.C., but instead to Representative Anthony D'Esposito's office. And I'm wondering, is the goal here to essentially cut him off and not have him have access to his constituents? Because, of course, McCarthy seems to think he can do nothing until the people of your district speak. Well, you know, I, I don't want to speak for any other uh, elected officials, but I think when a call comes into our office and we understand people don't always know whether something's a state issue, a federal issue, a county issue. Um, so we do the best to help them. Um, and, and I think the point is that it is difficult uh, to, you know, we don't have those relationships with any uh, staff over there. There's been, frankly, uh, you know, no attempt to uh, connect with our staffs from them. So we're going to do what we can do by utilizing other federal uh, representatives to make sure we help our constituents with their problems. Are you getting a sense, State Senator Martins, about how the constituents are feeling about this? I mean, I mentioned it being a cloud. You both have explained the way in which this has an impact on perhaps the viewpoint of Congress more broadly. But I am wondering, when you combine these set of lies, and I want to remind the audience what we're talking about. I have a full screen about the kinds of things he has lied about, from his resume to his grandparents surviving the Holocaust, to having lost employees at the Pulse nightclub shooting, to his even um, 9-11 claiming his mother's life. There's a whole slew of things we're talking about here. But you add on to that, State Senator, that he is being accused of using campaign funds to pay personal expenses. And there are big questions about the source of the $700,000 that was lent to his campaign. There's a lot to be concerned about. Do you share the latter concerns in terms of who's footing some of these bills and about the use of funding? Of course, uh, Laura. Look, um, there are campaign finance laws for a reason. Uh, we need to be in completely transparent when it comes to um, identifying who our donors are. And certainly, to the extent that there were $700,000 that, for all intents and purposes, is unaccounted for, uh, it just goes to add to the list of things for which George Santos is responsible. You know, unfortunately, he has become a punchline 
a, a sad joke. And, you know, to answer your first question, I have heard from hundreds of constituents. I have received emails from hundreds more, uh, people who are concerned about the ability of their U.S. representative to actually be effective. And so, you know, that has become the backdrop behind which we have to work. Um, we will continue to do our part. We will continue to do what we can to support our constituents. But at the end of the day, uh, Santos has to step down. Jack Martins, Ed Ra, thank you so much. I want to turn now to that very discussion about the idea of effectiveness, not just about what would happen if he resigns or not, but about I mean, what the process is going to be like for him in Washington, D.C. as well. And here with me in studio tonight, former Republican Congressman Joe Walsh, CNN political commentator Ashley Allison, and CNN national politics reporter Eva McKend. Nice to see you all here this evening. I mean, first of all, the list of things that he has lied about or has accused, the lawyer in me has to say, has allegedly lied about, but he has admitted to many of them. I mean, it's growing. And yet you do not have a full-throated response from, say, Speaker McCarthy, who's saying, look, this person should not be in Congress, cannot be in any committees. Not being on the top committees has been his comment. But tell me, Eva, in the reporting, why... Why is there not a full-throated condemnation of Santos by his Republican colleagues? Well, his Republican colleagues on Capitol Hill, it's a much different tune, as you can hear from the Republicans in the district, mm. in the state, out on Long Island. But listen, what we have seen here in Washington is that fates can change really quickly. It was just last year when there was a question whether or not Congressman Matt, Gate was, Matt Gates was going to face any criminal charges. He ultimately did not. Um, and now, fast forward a year later, and he has this, like, kingmaker status, right? We were all looking at how consequential uh, he ended up being in the speakership vote. And so, you know, I think as um, troublesome as some members might turn out to be, Kevin McCarthy is, is on thin ice. He only, it only will take one member, these were the rules that he agreed, agreed to, one member to trigger a vote that could potentially oust him mm -hmm. as speaker, and so it doesn't really matter uh, from a purely political perspective how unsavory someone turns out to be. He cannot afford to alienate or marginalize any of his members. Now, isn't that telling? The idea that obviously McCarthy knows the math, even when things don't add up, though, still having to make the concession, not just the broad rules package concession, but the idea of saying, look, I, look the people can decide. They, they've chosen this person to be their member of Congress but there's a moment he talks about the decision. And I can't help but think the people didn't get to decide on this person. They decided on, in many respects, a, um, well, whoever was created by this candidate, right? Yeah, I think that the people should get to decide based on facts and not the fiction that Santos has put forth when he was running for election. To Eva's point, it's not just his votes for speaker, it's his votes across his entire caucus. The margin of victory for Republicans in the House is so slim for every vote. To have this seat become vacant and go into a special election in New York could potentially, the voters could show up and it could go to the Democrats. And then People would want, you know, Kevin McCarthy to walk the plank for sure or whoever is the speaker. So I appreciate the Republicans in Nassau County saying 
and in New York saying, we don't care about the politics of it. Our constituents deserve real truthful representation. They know the math of Washington, D.C. also, Mm -hmm. but they are actually picking people over politics while many in the House caucus are not. But I wonder wonder how much, though, they they are trying to preserve that seat, right? A couple Mm. more months, two years of George Santos, they'll never be viable in that district again. I know. So I don't know how, you know, how much altruism it is and might maybe just worried about political viability in the future. Imagine that. Worried a a (laughs) self-serving reason in politics, Joe. I think they know that. Look, McCarthy wants his vote and wants his seat. End of story. I wouldn't be surprised, Laura, if they've already cut a deal that he won't run again in two years and just kind of keep your mouth shut as long as McCarthy has his vote and seat. But man, when you were running through that litany of lies, it just kept hitting me in my head how unsurprising this is. Really? Yeah, I mean, McCarthy and congressional Republicans, Laura, are in a bind as well. How can they condemn and demand George Santos resign for lying when Donald Trump is the leader of this party? We've never had a politician in the history of mankind who lied like Donald Trump has lied. Well, I'll tell you on that point, I I want you to continue, but um, there's one moment when he says, and there was an answer, in an answer to a question on all of the lies that we just showed you again on the screen, McCarthy says, a lot of people in Congress have fabricated their resume, (laughs) uh, or in general. Um, Um, Is that the standard we're talking about right now? Your, Your point is, if lying makes you a political pariah, It's only for Santos so far. And Trump's the leader of the party, and he's the liar he is. The other thing, Laura, that jumps out is there's no shame in the Republican Party in the age of Trump. Santos Santos isn't apologizing. He's not saying he's sorry for anything. What's he doing? He's punching back constantly. You know, the thing, though, it's interesting. Okay, you lie about your parents or your grandparents being... Uh, killed in the Holocaust, Pulse nightclub shootings, losing staff, 9-11. These are iconic moments in our country's history. Okay. The latter, a New York iconic moment in particular. Yeah, exactly. And so I'm not saying, you know, a big lie or a little lie is one is better than the other. A lie is a lie. But the things that he is lying about are almost unnecessary to have a part of your resume to become an elected official. Nobody expects you to be, you know, a descendant of a Holocaust survivor to serve in Congress. They expect you to acknowledge the Holocaust happened. But we have people, you know, some. And then the funny thing about you saying Donald Trump is the reason why this is allowed in this party is because after McCarthy is elected, he's the main one saying we can't undermine or undercount how important yeah. Donald Trump was in this. He's yeah. still the leader of the party. The leader, but the party. let's be clear, there ha- there are Republicans who are calling for Santos at the very least not to be able to be sat on committees. There are some that are calling him a threat to national security. The idea of asking for, we had Congressman Ryan on yesterday, who's a Democrat, of course, from, um, from New York, but he was talking about even the idea, of he's, he ought to at the very least have a full background check because of the sensitivity yeah. of what a member of Congress is able to see. And in a way, doesn't this point to the fact that so often we've got these loopholes in the law from what we think is illegal and what ought to be illegal and what is actually illegal? This is a loophole. If the only way to get him to leave is you have to volunteer to step down, is that a direction that legislators will go in next? I mean, it's yet to be seen. We know that at least uh, two uh, Democratic members of Congress have indicated that there should be, I think it's called the Santos. Yeah, uh, Richie, Richie Torres, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. 
to, to actually so th- so that this cannot happen again. Uh, but listen, you know, some of those rank and file, I think, remo- Republican members feel more free to say that they don't. Ne- it seems like they don't necessarily feel comfortable maybe working with him. Uh, but that is not the wiggle room that McCarthy has. Right. He he has to keep all of these folks in line. And so he's not going to be as outspoken, I think, as some of these rank and file members. But it does give Democrats, I think, an opening here to essentially characterize, like, use Santos as long as he lasts as emblematic of the Republican conference. So so that is, you know, one thing that they get. That's not exactly, I think, a fair thing to do, but it's certainly politically something that they can do um, as this saga goes on and on. Oh, and then one last thing I will say. I think that as Santos continues to suck up the oxygen, I think that is going to be alienating to some Republican members who want attention for their committee hearing or this bill that they introduce, and they just can't get that attention because of Santos. I think maybe we'll start to hear more outcry. That's a good point, especially because um, what you find, and no offense to the former congressman at the table... (laughs) There's a reason people want those C-SPAN cameras up, but it's not always to inform the public about things. <laughs> really good point. Also, the idea that we're talking about someone who, the, all of what we described is neither a feather in the cap, nor is it an anvil. And what does that really say about where things are? So good to have you all on. And up next, we're going to talk about a second batch of classified documents that have been found by President Biden's legal team. A second batch of documents. And so we're saying that they weren't in his former office in Washington. So what we've learned so far and the questions that still remain unanswered, we're going to get to next. Well, today we're learning that President Biden's legal team found another batch of classified documents. A source saying these documents came in searches that began after the November discovery of the classified docs from President, or now President Biden's time as vice president in an old office in Washington, D.C. So the question really is, what does this mean for the president? How are we just now learning about this? And also the DOJ going forward. Joining me now, CNN special correspondent Jamie Gangel, CNN senior law enforcement analyst Andrew McCabe, and CNN legal analyst Elliot Williams. I'm glad you're all here, and I bet we have Similar questions as to who, what, when, where. The question of who knew what, when, why. But I want to begin with you, Jamie, because... The answer is, we don't know. (laughs) Well, there we go. That ends the segment today. Thank you for watching CNN. No, but seriously, I mean, I'm I'm trying to wrap my mind around some of the reporting that's come in over the last 24 hours, even in a statement in Mexico City. And there were, what, 40 boxes that were handed over and an abundance of caution from the first batch we learned about. It doesn't necessarily add up about the 10 classified docs or not, whatever, whatever level they were. But are these new batch? Is this from a different location or is that part of those 40 boxes that was handed over? A different location. And let's just call it an undisclosed location mm-hmm. uh, at the moment. The first location was his office, part of the Biden Penn Center that had been sitting there for several years. Uh, these boxes were locked up. My understanding is 99% of what was in that office was personal. It included things like uh, the burial arrangement documents for Beau Biden's funeral, boxes of condolence letters that had been sent to him as vice president. And that's why his personal lawyer was going through it, because they thought it was all personal and confidential. And then that lawyer gets to a box, he opens it up, there's a folder marked VP personal, not unimportant. He opens that up. It says classified. He closes it again. 
And he calls the White House counsel. He says, Houston, we have a problem. They say, call the National Archives. Uh, in that first batch, there were about four boxes that they found that seemed to be different from all the other 36 personal boxes. And those had both those 10 classified documents mm -hmm. and then other documents that were unclassified but fall under the Presidential Records Act. Sorry for the long explanation. No, it's exactly what we need to hear because it sounds like, one, there's different locations, Andrew, and where things are, but also an abundance of caution to then just say, here you go, here's the whole kit and caboodle. Right. Of course, the issue, and there are many issues here, um, is are, are people giving President Biden a pass on the idea of, look, this happens. This is not the response people had for the former president, Donald Trump. Of course, the big distinction here is how one behaved once they were aware of it. Is that a distinction that you think should be highlighted more? It's a very significant distinction, and particularly in the context of the investigation that will follow. So is he getting a pass? No, I don't believe he's going to get a pass. He's going to be investigated, and I would uh, opine likely by a special counsel. He's already been a U.S. attorney out of Illinois, a Trump holder right. appointee who That's has right. given a report. That's right. And at this point, I think the attorney general would be well advised to appoint a special counsel over this investigation of how uh, President Biden and his team handled these documents. That's a separate issue. Um, but uh, I think his the distinctions between how his he and his team have handled this and how President Trump and his lawyers handled the situation in Mar-a-Lago could not be uh, more distinct, right? It's, it's, it's night and day. It's an overabundance of caution, contacting uh, the archives immediately, having them come out the next day to recover all of the documents. There's no parsing of, well, you can look in this room and not in that room, or you can look in the doorway but not go in the boxes. They handed everything over. I think following in that caution, they are now searching other locations right. where documents could maybe have ended up as well. Contrast that to what's happening right now in the Mar-a-Lago case. You have the Department of Justice fighting it out with Trump's lawyers in court to try to hold them in contempt for failing to do exactly what the Biden team is doing right now, that is going out and searching other locations. You have the Trump team refusing to turn over the names of the two private investigators they hired to go out and do their own search, refusing to turn over the names of those investigators because they basically don't want the mm. department to know who they are. So very different reactions. There is a cooperation element, so it's so important in here. But I, just so for the audience, Perspective. Yeah. Is it all this, all that common? We're hearing about it in real time and says of months about this. But the fact that there's, you know, in the law, we think about custodian of records yeah. and chain of custody. Is there really no one out there who is realizing that they're missing some of these top secret documents? How is this continuously happening? Yeah, I think the big picture point is that we just need a better system in the United States of tracking what happens with classified information after the term of not just a presidential administration, but after people leave government. Right. So as a general, that's the big picture thing that affects both of these presidents. Now, as to this question, it's a really important one that you asked, Laura, about is a pass being given to one party or another? And it's really important to focus on, at least with former President Trump, a federal judge had found that there was probable cause to believe that there would be evidence of a series of crimes, including, number one, obstruction of justice, number two, removal or mutilation of documents, and three, mishandling of defense information. And then beyond that, there was the open question of the amount of time, the staggering amount of time over several months, where the former president, and with the aid of his lawyers, was helped... Was, 
allegedly frustrating the Justice Department's investigation into this. You mean it's, the search warrant probable yeah, cause outlined search this Mar-a-Lago. very thing? Yeah, outlined all of this. And so it's just apples and oranges here. Now, look, we may find that President Biden and his attorneys are thwarting the investigation of the Justice Department, but that's simply not the case right now. And if that evidence were to emerge, of course the president the current president should be investigated. But that's just not the case. And I think this desire to make it uh, one side versus the other thing, you just can't do that to every case. And it's just not not the case here. We are a society that draws yes. distinctions and analogies probably more often than yeah. we should. However, there were a lot of questions today. And here are just a, a couple of them that were asked and of the White House press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre, that she declined to answer. Who brought the documents to the office? Did Biden himself bring them? Why did it take so long to disclose the discovery to the public? Was the timing related to the midterm elections? Were there any other things found? Is there an audit underway? Was he briefed? When was he briefed? Why were the private lawyers doing this? A number of questions that she declined to answer because she cited an ongoing investigation. But that election part, the mm-hmm. when the people are finding out, that is going to be something that already has legs and might continue to run as he intends to run for the re-election campaign. Do you have a sense as to why they haven't gotten out ahead of this? I mean, from Monday to now, why not just say more? Look, I, I think the issue of why wait so long is a real issue that's going to have political yeah. consequences for him. Uh, People don't like to hear this, but this is a gift to Donald Trump and the Republicans. And waiting so long is part of that gift. That said, maybe their reasoning is that they were cooperating with an investigation. I don't know. But the political fallout is what it is. I will say, I don't think there's much of a chance that Joe Biden carried these, you know, 40 (laughs) boxes here. Uh, I have a source who's very familiar with the documents. For the record, he is a lifelong registered Republican, and he knows a lot about how these things are handled over the years. He thinks it was very likely an honest mistake. The real question today is, what are these other new documents right. that yeah. were found in these other locations? Your eyebrow raised at the thought of an honest mistake. Maybe the FBI within you was like, honest mistake? What is this no, you say about no, an honest no. mistake? Go ahead. No, actually, and, and Elliot can back me up on this. These sort of referrals from the National Archives or other places yeah. about the concerns about classified documents that may be outside of approved facilities, they come to the department and to the FBI all the time. And most of them are resolved without criminal charges. Uh, the Bureau's first uh, concern is to, to find out where is this stuff, let's get it back, mm-hmm. and to conduct an assessment as to whether or not there's been damage to national security. Have we compromised sources and methods? Do we need to move people? Do we need to remove technologies from places that they are helping us collect intelligence? Um, and once that's done, that's when you start thinking about, could it have been an honest mistake, i.e., do we not have enough evidence to prove the intent mm-hmm. to mishandle handle documents that's required under those uh, statutes. So there will be a time for all that. And all of these facts that you've mentioned are going to be important. We're going to come back to this point. It's important to hear all your perspectives. And of course, remember that the reason we know about the search on Mar-a-Lago and the entire course of events between Trump and the archives is because Trump was the one to have said something about it. So maybe there was a, maybe a lesson learned and it's gone awry. Who knows? Either way, There are new allegations coming today out that against a major figure in the Republican Party. And Jamie Gangel is here with reporting, and she's going to tell us about who we're talking about and what it is right after this. (music) 
tonight, one of the most powerful figures in conservative politics is fending off allegations of sexual assault. A Republican strategist, a man in his late 30s, accuses Matt Schlapp, who is the head of the American Conservative Union, of fondling his groin while the strategist, who's working for the Georgia Senate campaign of Republican Herschel Walker, was driving Slap to campaign events back in October. Slap calls the accusation false. He's a part of a Washington power couple. His wife, Mercedes Schlapp, worked for President Trump as communications director. Jamie Gangel is back with us now. Jamie, these allegations... Tell me what they are. So as you described it, this is a Republican strategist, a male in his late 30s who was working for the Herschel Walker campaign. Uh, We are told, he told CNN that he had been driving Schlapp, that they went to two bars. He's now driving him back to his hotel. And that's when the sexual assault happened. The staffer said that he froze he didn't say anything. He didn't know what to do. He just wanted to get him back to the hotel as quickly as possible. They get to the hotel, and the staffer says that Schlapp invited him up to his hotel room. He declined to do that, and several hours later, he informed top campaign staffers what happened. Uh, that same day? That, um, it, night. It's sort of overnight. So it's late at night when it happens, and, and then he, he tells them early the next morning, Uh, And the staffer says that the campaign was incredible and completely supportive and said, what can we what can we do to help? For the record, uh, Schlapp is denying the charges. As you mentioned, we have a statement from his lawyer. The lawyer says, quote, the attack is false and Mr. Schlapp denies any improper behavior. We are evaluating legal options for response. The board of directors of the ACU also say that they are standing behind Schlapp and his leadership. I understand that there are some text messages that you have obtained between the parties involved. What is in them? So CNN has reviewed text messages from that night and the phone logs. And this text message exchange is actually between the staffer and Schlapp. And it's the next morning. Uh, The campaign, uh, the top campaign officials told the staffer, do not get into the car with him. Do not drive him. So this text exchange is when the staffer is texting Schlapp to tell him that he's not going to be driving him the next morning. And he says, quote, I did want to say I was uncomfortable with what happened last night. The campaign does have a driver who's available to get you to Macon and back to the airport. According to the phone logs, Matchlap tries to call the staffer a couple of times. The staffer did not pick up. And a couple of hours later, Schlapp then texts the staffer and says, quote, if you could see it in your heart to call me at the end of the day, I would appreciate it. If not, I wish you luck on the campaign and hope you keep up the good work. We also reviewed uh, a set of text messages that we're making public for the first time. It's the night before. He, it's when the staffer gets back and he reaches out to a friend in politics to tell him what happened. He really sounds distraught in the messages. And he's asking the friend, how do I tell the campaign what happened? So he says, quote, he's pissed I didn't follow him to his hotel room. Then later, the friend he's reaching out to responds and says, I'm so sorry, man. What a effing creep. And then the staffer later texts, 
I just don't know how to say it to my superiors that their surrogate fondled my junk without consent. Wow. There's a lot to take in there. Right. And the text messages tell a significant aspect of this story. I, I am wondering, why are we just learning about this now? It right. always seems to be a question that I have and the timing of it, because I think that some people in the court of public opinion, obviously, often question the timing as to when and how it's done. Do you have a sense as to why now, three months later? So what the staffer told us was this was two weeks before the election. He didn't want it to distract from the campaign. He didn't feel it was the campaign's fault, and he was afraid it was going to become another controversy. For Herschel Walker. For Herschel Walker. And he really appreciated also that the campaign did everything to support him. Uh, He says he's coming out now because the campaign is over. He doesn't want anyone else to be victimized. And he says that he is considering his legal options open. And just so we're clear, this was not a member of the Herschel Walker campaign, a surrogate of the campaign. The uh, the staffer. The no, no, the Matt Schlapp. Matt Schlapp was a surrogate who had come down to Georgia to do some rally events for the campaign. Really important. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you. Unbelievable. Think about this happening. Well, everyone, there was a total airline meltdown, and I should add the word again. And this time it wasn't just one particular uh, airline, Southwest. But the question that many people are asking tonight is, why does this keep happening? And just how at risk is the infrastructure in aviation in this country? We're going to talk about all of it after this. Well, we've got new details tonight about the massive flight disruptions today and what led the FAA to issue its 90-minute nationwide ground stop of flights. A source tells CNN that air traffic control officials discovered a computer glitch in a key system late Tuesday. Even now, airlines across the country are still grappling with the ripple effects. More than 10,000 U.S. flights have been delayed. Over 1,300 have been canceled. The Biden administration says there is no evidence of a cyber attack at this time. Let's talk about now with Juliet Kayyem, former Department of Homeland Security official, and Andrew McCabe, former FBI deputy director. Juliet, I mean, this is very concerning, not just from a consumer traveler perspective, but the idea of what is your reaction to the fact that this even happened? Right. Well, you're talking to two people who are here, but we yeah. had flights today, so we were at the, from the front lines, as we say. We both were oh, delayed, wow. uh, but we got here. Look, this is serious in the sense we have not had a nationwide grounding since 9-11, so this does not happen often. You, you, you do not close down the airport system. And uh, this wasn't just any system that broke down. It's, it's called the NOTAM system. It's essentially the notice to the pilots of what's going on on the ground. Mm-hmm. Is there something on the runway? Is there a disruption at an airport? And it's communicating with the pilots. So it, without it, you have no communication with the pilots. So, so to call it a system didn't work. It was, it's actually a very relevant system. It's a safety and security system. Wow. So, so, uh, None of it is good. Um, The FAA, I will say, took too long to tell us what was going on. They knew from yesterday midday there were glitches in the system. To their credit, they're trying to get the system to fix itself. They're rebooting it. There's backup systems. None of them are working. So too many passengers are arriving at airports. I think they could have communicated faster. The good news is is that even a system this complicated uh, was able to get back up and running within 90 minutes. And airplanes, I mean, I got delayed... Uh, 
in the end, just about an hour and 10 minutes. And I had a flight sort of at the key time. Well, what is this corrupt file about? What does this mean? It's a glitch. They're talking about the NOTAM system. So we've been told they found a corrupted file in the database of the main NOTAM system. Curiously, they also found a corrupted file in the backup system. So the question is, what kind of system are we talking about? How old is this system? How well-maintained is it? Is it capable of keeping up with the incredible demands that we put on our aviation systems? Well, wait, does corrupt file mean something nefarious, or it could be something as a benign glitch? It could really go either way, and I'm glad that the administration is uh, uh, couching their references to cybercrimes, we have no indication at this time of a cyber attack. I think it's a little bit early to be drawing the conclusion that there was no cyber connection to this. Um, But as we know, the best cyber attackers are those who leave no trace and whose, you know, attribution is something that you build to over time. So we're really going to need to watch this as it develops. It's the second sort of aviation-related crisis in as many weeks. And obviously, there are different reasons for them happening. But at the end of the day, many people are wondering about the infrastructure and the vulnerability. We think about our electrical systems and the substations and the like about vulnerabilities for different reasons again, but overall, thematically, are there real concerns about how to make it safer? Because they don't even have a head of the Federal Aviation Administration right now. Since last March, the nominee, Philip Washington, has been criticized for having limited experience and also for a a corruption scandal of some kind. There's an investigation that he is um, named, not personally, but involved in in some way. There's no head Right. And, and airlines and the head of the FAA, they don't take technology seriously. I mean, in the sense that there are, the entire foundation of our, of the safety system for aviation is on keeping your technology system modern, modernized, up to date, and to make sure you don't have glitches like this, or if you have a glitch in the backup system, that it's identified early. You can understand one glitch. I can't understand that two aren't identified. So we have to take, when we talk about building critical infrastructure, let's stop talking about bridges. Let's stop talking about roads. Let's start talking about a technology system that can move our society, and that is aviation. It has not been nurtured. It is the most regulated industry I can think of in in transportation. Uh, And yet there is almost no requirements for technology upgrades by the airlines or the FAA uh, getting its act together in terms of what these systems are. Let's spend our critical infrastructure money on this because the disruption is what we saw today. That's foreboding, but I hear it. I'm glad you shared it. Thank you so much, everyone. Also, Prince Harry's memoir. I don't know how it was a turn from aviation to Prince Harry's memoir, but I'm going to do it right now. We'll talk about that. Because it's breaking records. There you go. It's soaring. The records are soaring. They're sky high. That's how we're doing this. We'll tell you how many copies he sold in the book's first day on the shelves because they're flying off the shelves. And what else Harry is revealing? Well, Prince Harry's media blitz is certainly paying off because his new memoir, Spare, is certainly hot property. The publisher, Penguin Random House, says the book sold more than 1.4 million copies on its very first day of publication. This is the largest first day sales total for any nonfiction book the company has ever published. And last night on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Harry said he's glad people can finally read his story in his own words. Writing this book has been a a cathartic experience for me. Um, Hard times and happy times, uh, bringing up old memories that I didn't think I had. 
Well, Colbert asked Prince Harry if he believes there is an active campaign by Buckingham Palace and others in Britain to undermine his book. Here's his response. Of course, and, and mainly by the British press, because they but are... But aided and abetted by yeah, the palace. again, of course. But there's, there's, this is the other side of the story, right? After 38 years. They've told their side of the story. This is the other side of the story. And there's a lot in here that, you know, perhaps makes people feel uncomfortable and scared. Well, Random House says the first U.S. printing of Harry's book was 2 million copies. Told you he's already sold 1.4 the first day. So now it's printing a lot more books to even meet the demand. Now up next, we're going to take a look down Pennsylvania Avenue at the powers held between the White House and of course, Congress on Capitol Hill. So what will that balance look like now that Republicans are in charge of the House? We're taking a step back and we're also leaning in next. Tonight, more classified documents from Biden's time as vice president found at a second location. First telling CNN, the president's legal team discovered this batch during a search conducted after the other classified docs were found back in November. And it's just really adding to the chaos and maybe the delight of some in Washington, D.C. tonight. If you look down Pennsylvania Avenue from the White House to Congress, investigations are brewing. You can argue that some are absolutely warranted. You can argue some are absolutely not. But this is President Biden's new reality as he navigates the next two years with Republicans controlling the House. I want to bring in former Republican Congressman Joe Walsh, CNN political commentator Ashley Allison, and Tia Mitchell, Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Look... Biden does not have the smoothest of paths ahead of him. We can say that with a straight face and perhaps a little bit of a smile or a frown, depending on where you think about this. But Ashley, Republicans have said as much that they are hell-bent on being not just a thorn in his side, but maybe even taking him down and making sure our Republicans in the Oval Office come 2024. How does the White House keep its eyes on the promised prize of even their own campaign. They have to continue to to deliver and they need to draw the contrast of Republicans trying to take one man down rather than delivering for the people and continue either putting legislation forward, maybe knowing that it's not gonna pass in the House and not, not get to his bill, but calling those votes and make each elected official stand by what they believe policy Related. I also think they have opportunities on uh, administrative action. Um, they can take different positions with issues that people really care about. We know from this last midterm, the American people were not satisfied in the direction that the country was going, but it wasn't just about the economy. It was about protecting our democracy, cutting out this nonsense, and getting and improving the lives of American people. And that's what I would do if I was the Biden administration. I wouldn't take the bait of the Republicans. They're going to throw out red meat. Let them pander to that portion of the base. If they do and, and do these investigations on Hunter Biden and whatnot, I think it backfires on Republicans in the long run, and the Biden administration needs to focus on governing. Tia, she makes a really strong point about the idea of if the focus is is bringing one person down as opposed to lifting maybe millions up, especially in the economy that we're in and beyond, 
The focus has been, and they have not been shy um, on the campaign trail. And frankly, Republicans did reclaim the majority in the House and their platforms were not hidden about investigating the investigators, the origins of COVID-19, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, Hunter Biden, the the Biden finances more broadly. Um, This seems to be a lot about the political optics because they can't really force anything legislatively, right? Right. We don't expect substantial legislation to come out of Congress for the next two years because the House is being moved further towards the right. Meanwhile, not only is the Senate more, the Senate Republicans are more moderate, but we know Democrats are in control in the Senate. Of course, Democrats are in control in the White House. So absent of that substantial legislation and, quite frankly, gridlock that we expect in the House, just among Republicans in the House, that does give the White House opportunity to focus on things like implementing the infrastructure bill, implementing the Chips and Science Act. You know, the White House can say, We'll let them fight it out. We've got work to do because they they did have a successful last two years. So they've got a lot of things on their plate that they can build off of. Now, things like the confidential documents found at President Biden's private private office. He's going to have to deal with that. It is a distraction. It is a, a way that his critics can say, see, he's just as bad as the things he's, you know, the things Democrats say President Trump has done. But to Ashley's points, the White House can say, we're not going to let that distract us from the work. I mean, it's clear that, I mean, there's going to be the argument of people who live in glass houses should not throw stones. But others who have been in the White House have had to deal with something similar, not the, not perfectly analogous, but I mean, Obama had to contend, of course, with um, Benghazi in his, in his term. You had George W. Bush about the identity of a CIA agent and, and beyond. Presidents don't always have the ability to have their own party in the majority in both houses and chambers of Congress. Is there something different about this time that you think this might play differently? Yeah, and I think it plays to Biden's benefit. If done right, this is an enormous opportunity for President Biden. As you said, Laura, the next two years are gonna be investigations on steroids. It's gonna be utter chaos in the House. Biden got elected in 2020 because Trump was so chaotic and Biden was this calm in the storm. He can do the same thing these next two years and just kind of defensively respond to all the chaos that's going on in the House, which legislatively won't do anything for the American people. I think it's an opportunity. What do you think, though, Ashley, about the idea? I mean, you've got um, the quiet part being said out loud in terms of it's obvious that politics is part of the retaliatory perception people have of Congress right now. But they promised this before they were elected. I'm talking about Republicans in November. It wasn't as if this was a shock to the voters. Does that indicate that this is there is an appetite for this? Or even if there was one, does that mean it's not going to be sustained. I don't think the appetite is as strong as some people might think. Really? Look at the outcome of the 2022 the election. Yeah. People, this red wave was like a drizzle, you know? Yeah. there. Where was it? It didn't manifest because the voters... What is happening in Washington, D.C., and the Republican Party is disconnected to what is happening to everyday Americans across the country. Mm-hmm. And... The Republicans, by any stretch of the imagination, should have taken governor's seats, not had many state legislatures flipped. Secretaries of state should have been governors. 
The House did go to, um, excuse me, should have been Republicans. The House did go to Republicans, but not by the margins at all that we suspected. And then the Senate stayed in control for the Dems. It's because people don't want oversight unnecessarily. They want our government to function properly. They want the three branches of our government to be a checks and balances among them. They feel like there was some overreach on Mm -hmm. the judicial branch. And I think the voters sent a message. And I don't think it was investigations, investigations, investigations. And yet, Tia, and I want you to respond to this as well, Joe. I mean, you do have this idea of the weaponization. You're talking about the idea of the allegation was that the former president um, was not weaponizing the federal government or the, or the DOJ. Now the allegation is that Biden's doing this very thing. So the investigation, the investigation is to now look at the so-called weaponization of the federal government. And I'm wondering what the end game is there. I mean, is it on the one hand, obviously, to likely tarnish Biden, but is it also to rehabilitate Trump? And could that work? I mean, I think that rehabilitating Trump and giving talking points you know, almost that they're talking to Trump by having these investigations currying favor with Trump, currying favor with Trump supporters, those MAGA Republicans that a lot of rank and file Republicans believe that's the kind of support they need to stay in office, to seek higher office. The risk is, will Republicans in the House overplay their hand? They're playing to their base right now, not just with these special investigations that they're already setting up, but with the bills they're passing, the anti-abortion legislation and things like that. Yes, it speaks to their base. It, it is a message that resounds in conservative media. But in a, in a wider swath of voters, again, I don't think that's necessarily what voters want their members of Congress to be focused on. And the question is, if they do this too much, and especially if it starts leading to gridlock when it comes to things that matter more, like the farm bill that needs Mm -hmm. to be reauthorized, like government spending, like the debt ceiling, will that turn voters off? And could that lead, you know, to some Republican losses? The midterms, it's 2023. We're talking the next election in 2024. Well, you're thinking about the idea of the us versus them political world. It, it comes down to, is it him or the rest of us? And that'll be the priority. We're coming back to all of you, don't worry. And I'm sure you've been hearing a lot lately, probably wondering why so much of people yelling, I mean, actually yelling about gas stoves, not politics, but, le- but gas stoves lately. You're probably wondering why that is. Well, believe it or not, this kitchen appliance is the latest front in the culture wars. And of course, politics is not far behind. I'm going to tell you why and give you the facts about gas stoves next. Have you been hearing a lot about gas stoves the past couple of days? I bet you have. That's because they've become the latest political flashpoint after comments from a consumer product safety commissioner in an interview with Bloomberg. Richard Trumka Jr. telling the outlet gas stoves are a, quote, hidden hazard, and that, quote, any option, unquote, is on the table, including banning them. Well, that set everybody off. President Biden even weighed in with the White House saying, quote, the president does not support banning gas stoves. This comment comes at a time when, of course, he's fending off attacks about classified documents. Think about the priorities of how big of an issue this has become. Now, the head of the CPSC later clarifying Trumpka's comments on Twitter, writing, I want to set the record straight. Contrary to recent media reports, I am not looking to ban gas stoves, and the U.S. CPSC has no proceeding to do so. 
more on the facts about the health hazards of gas stoves in just a moment. First, let's bring back in Joe Walsh, Ashley Allison, and Tia Mitchell. You know, we all kind of giggle about how can this be an issue and how we're talking about this, but replace some of the words for gas stove with other issues that happened. For example, Ronnie Jackson from Texas tweeting, I'll never give up my gas stove. If the maniacs in the White House come for my stove, they can pry it from my cold, dead hands. Come and take it. Joe Manchin saying this is a recipe for disaster. Federal government has no business telling American families how to cook their dinner. I can tell you the last thing that would ever leave my house is the gas stove that we cook on. I couldn't help but thinking as I read these tweets, I thought, I think I've heard similar arguments in every culture war, even about guns, the idea of the government coming in to take things away. Is that what this symbolizes, that this is the next frontier of what the government's trying to take away? Laura, as the only former Republican and former right-wing radio talk show host at the table, (laughs) let me just say, (laughs) Democrats, Laura, better nip this gas stove thing in the bud right now or it's going to get them. Um, Three years ago, a couple people on the left said we need to defund the police. And Republicans tagged the whole Democratic Party with that. Um, They are doing and they will try to do the same thing with this gas stove business. I know because I used to do that. You paint the Democrats as out of touch with regular folk who depend upon these gas stoves. Democrats need to fight this head on. Really? And even the president addressing it immediately, Mm -hmm. because obviously the reason they had to address it is because it had gotten out there that it was no longer about a connection possibly with asthma or conversations about the emissions, even if it was off in terms of the pilot being on in some respects. It was what the government is trying to do to Mm -hmm. get you, the common person, and attack these industries. Is that what has to happen to nip it in the bud? And is it already too late? I think it's a messaging issue. This is a good lesson. You know, uh, Trumpka's remarks probably weren't the most precise, maybe not the most uh, comprehensive in explaining it. Uh, But there's been journalism that has explained it more accurately. But then there are a lot of, you know, the conservative media uh, sphere kind of put their own spin on it that did not accurately portray what was going on. Again, This at the core is about childhood asthma, which is not just a serious disease that costs a lot of money and keeps kids sick. Children die of asthma attacks every day. So we're talking about the federal government looking at something to say, what can we do to make things better for children? Could that possibly mean in the future not selling new gas stoves? But that's a conversation that needs to be had in a way that's much more delicate than the Trump rollout. And so and my, that's a lesson for the Biden administration. Excuse me, I didn't want to cut you off. But there's also already bans in different states about new developments in New York, for example, not being able to have or trying to um, essentially age out all these different instances because of what you're talking about. But it also reminds me of, I mean, the the phrase that comes to mind was special interests, Ashley, because it was seized upon. The idea of this comment, as you mentioned in a Bloomberg piece, talked about and the health risks. You had the American Gas Association, Ashley, put out a statement against Trumpka's comments. And obviously they were not favorable about anyone trying to in any way hint that gas was not a good idea. Is this an indication of just how our politics really operates that Special interests will control the day. Yeah, this was so unfortunate and unnecessary. I think everyone, former Republican, Republican, Democrat, 
progressive would agree we don't want children to be suffering and dying from asthma attacks. I think that's the baseline. But we don't talk about issues like that. We talk about it like you're trying to the government's trying to take this from me or you're trying to come into my private home. Look, I grew up learning gas cooks better. You know, that's how my grandmother taught me is like cooking with gas was the phrase, right? She used to say cooking with oil. But literally it was like gas is cooking cooks better. So when I saw I was like, why are they talking about banning gas stoves? When you do a little more research, it is about how you present information to people. If you talk about this through the lens of children and we want to keep our children healthy and safe, the first thing that comes to my mind, though, to be honest, is not banning a gas stove. It's like getting climate change under control. It's um, stopping pollution. It, It doesn't seem like you jump to gas stoves. So. Again, it feels like you're a little out of touch with the everyday person when you say, like, in order to stop childhood asthma, ban gas stoves. That's not a winning campaign line. I don't know any voter in any party who's going to really side with that. But talk to people about the everyday experiences they have and the Dems can get this back. But aren't we we a little bit at fault, though, in the sense, Joe, of, look, the, the whole article, it seemed, was not about trying to go hyperbolic, right? But the way it's been received and the way that it's seized upon is really the crux of so many issues. That that statement perhaps was innocuous, perhaps it was benign, perhaps it wasn't, but it was seized on to the president of the United States mm-hmm. has to weigh in that today, all of a sudden, you're losing your gas stove in your house. Laura, it's just like defund the police. That was seized upon because a couple of people on the left said that, and the Republicans painted the whole party with that. Uh, in December, 20 congressional Democrats asked the commission to consider banning um, gas stoves. You've got Democrats in New York and California who are pushing this. I just think it is an issue where Democrats look out of touch. That's a weakness of theirs. And and, it, and Republicans aren't talking about this with truth. Yes. If you actually talk to people who believe in defund the police, it's about police reform. It's yes. about reinvesting in communities. It's about keeping black and brown people safe from police officers who disproportionately are stopped and, and killed by police. That's what the movement of defund the police is, whether you agree with it or not. But Republicans take it and say, you're coming for my gas co- stoves. You want air. Yeah. yeah. Well, this just proves the point. Who knew we'd go from gas stoves <laughs> to defunding the police? Proves that politics always finds a common thread and how it will be dealt with. I can imagine the headlines tomorrow about this very issue. I actually want to bring in Joe Allen, who's the director of the Healthy Buildings Program at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. I'm hoping you can help to set the record straight in some respect because... Because how politics gets involved, people have a whole different viewpoint of what was said, what the impact is, are gas stoves being taken out, are they banned, what's the deal? We haven't talked about gas fireplaces in homes, by the way, but that's a separate issue. But what is the real deal? This December study said what? Yeah, so thanks for having me on. I'm happy to talk, step back and talk about the science and what it says about health. And what we're finding is is really quite interesting. And and stepping back from all the mismessaging out there, no one it's not imminent that we're gonna rip out gas stoves. But if you go back to the science, you see that gas stoves can emit toxic gases like nitrogen dioxide or NO2. That can we know it irritates the airways. It can aggravate existing respiratory diseases like asthma. It causes it causes coughing and wheezing. And if you're exposed to it long enough, it can lead to the development of asthma in kids and in, and in adults. It can also influence cognitive performance of kids. It's bad for heart health. So take this all together. That's what's driving this story. There's a concern that burning this toxic gas in the home or having in the home leads to these adverse health effects. Here's two surprising facts for your audience. 
The first is this. Certainly when you're using a gas stove, the emissions are higher and the exposure is higher. But they emit, they can emit even when they're off. That surprises a lot of people when they're not in use. The second one is this. This recent study found that 12% of current asthma in kids is attributable to gas stoves. And in some states like California, Illinois, New York, it's about 20%. One in five. One in five kids whose asthma can be attributed to this toxic gas being used in the home. I think if you think about it under that lens, then this conversation makes a lot more sense just on the science. It, it, it's a good um, idea to limit exposure to toxic gases in the home that can lead to and contribute to, to asthma. As a mom, I'm concerned in particular because I wonder about the amount of time, say, a gas stove is even on in a home. She's talking about even a limited, the cooking hours that the kids are around in some respects, around the parents cooking, that, that even that limited window would lead to the one in five result you're talking about is really stunning for me to hear. But also the cities you named. Um, There are cities like San Francisco, cities like New York City as well, that have actually banned natural gas hookups. And you specialize in the idea of thinking about the safety of buildings, environmental concerns and whatnot. So how much responsibility do cities actually have in their legislation to get ahead of this issue or to course correct? Well, I think a lot of that's being driven by the Electrify Everything movement, which is, you know, we have to get off fossil fuels because of climate change, and part of that's limiting new gas hookups. But the conversation around gas stoves is less focused, I think, on these bigger issues around climate and more on the immediate impacts. I'm a father of three kids. It's hard for people to think about the abstract or seemingly abstract impacts of climate change. But you talk about my kids' health, yeah, then I'm going to start thinking about I'm going to do something about uh, that gas stove. So it's really, it's really um, important that we're having this conversation. But I also want to put it in the context of what we already know about things like nitrogen dioxide, the ga- one of these gases. You know, it surprises me there's so much focus on this. We've regulated NO2 as an outdoor air pollutant for over 50 years. And in fact, sometimes a gas stove can lead to NO2 levels in the home that would be illegal if it was outside. So I know this concern seems it's new, it's in the news, but we've been talking about NO2 exposures outdoors and regulated that for 50 years. And now the attention's coming on these indoor exposures that are happening. Now, something really important, what to do. So what can we do about right. this? I don't think it's practical, pragmatic, feasible, affordable to go out and rip out your gas stove right now. So simple things you can do when you're cooking, make sure your exhaust hood is on and vented to the outdoors. If you don't have that, just crack the window open a little bit. That's when your exposure is highest. Then when the time comes, next time you have to make a purchase, think about or definitely get an electric stove or an induction stove. Until then, ventilate to keep exposures low. I mean, is there an NO2 monitor one could have in their home to detect the levels they, are, they have right now? You could, but I think that's more on the scientific instrumentation side. I don't think every homeowner has to go out and do that. I don't think it's something you have to be thinking about, worrying about uh, every single night. I think when you're, when you're making better, when we can make better decisions going forward in new building stock, and I agree with these laws that are kind of limiting the hookups, um, but in the interim, when you're going to make a change, switch to a better product, an electric stove or an induction stove, and before that, just ventilate a little bit better. Every stove should have an exhaust hood over it that's vented to the outside. You just got to turn it on when you cook. So important, Joe. I'm also thinking about those who are renting or don't have the ability to make those those purchases and make those choices. So I hope everyone's listening tonight as well. Really important to hear your perspective, Joe Allen. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. There's some good news to report tonight. Damar Hamlin is out of the hospital today. 
But his terrifying collapse has players who are all across the league, frankly, many leagues, but the NFL grappling with the realities of their own sport. Stay with us to hear why. So after now 10 days in two separate hospitals, Buffalo Bills player DeMar Hamlin, well, he's finally home tonight. He was discharged this very morning from a Buffalo Medical Center. It's a remarkable feat considering it was just last Monday that he he suffered cardiac arrest on the field. The Bills coach says it will be up to Hamlin to decide when he returns to the team. We'll leave it up to him. You know, his health is first and foremost on our mind as far as his situation goes. And then uh, when he feels ready, um, you know, we welcome him back as, uh, as he feels ready. Joining me now, former NFL player Marcus Smith, the second, and CNN sports analyst Christine Brennan. Good to have you both here. Frankly, last time we were speaking, it was a very different set of circumstances. We were hoping he'd be able to go home, hoping he'd have a chance to recover, wondering a lot of things. But you heard the Bills coach player, uh, 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 Marcus, talking about this. I almost called you player. I was talking about the Bills coach <laughs> talking about the player. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, do you believe that there really is this shift about prioritizing the players, about prioritizing it's his decision? Because so often, because the way the contracts are written, Sometimes there is an incentive for players to play hurt. Right. Yeah. I think I think there is a shift with the NFL. I think they're pushing for for this mental health thing, and I really appreciate that because it's it's the work that you do as as a life coach. But I really truly feel like they're pushing more for mental health because we as players feel that we need that as 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 a mental as mental health. In, in the same, in, in the NFL. I, I really truly believe that we need that in the NFL. And it's important because, of course, talking about mental health as opposed to his physical health, the players who were on the field and many who are watching and now still re- are reeling about what they saw, and it has impacted how they feel about the sport, about their own confidence in playing, and you really can't play if you're reluctant to or nervous about getting hurt. Right. No, you, so when you get hurt, you can't really play like how you want to. And I think that most people, they think that, uh, that players have this, this, this galaxy warrior type mentality and we, we can't even have emotions. We can't even think about certain things because we're, we're always thinking about the next play. And that's what we always have been taught. So the next play, next play, if you notice when you look at a football game, when a, when a player gets hurt, they move the ball up and they resume the game. So when you look at all those things too as well, it's like, well, the emotion side of it, when are we gonna really tap into our emotions? And from experience, tapping into my emotions is speaking about what I've seen and what I've been through. Yeah. And so that's, that's how I think that we should kind of continue to move forward as, as the NFL, and we need to continue to speak that as players so we can really tap into our emotions and be better and healthier. Christine, if this had happened, I mean, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, sometimes you'd say even five years ago, would we be at a point where we're talking about even tapping into that emotion or even addressing the priority of those players? Absolutely not. Absolutely not, Laura. What Marcus is saying, it is such a step forward. And I think, you know, the NFL, as we've talked many times, is the the behemoth. It is our most popular sport by far. And in this way, it is coming along with our culture. 
Think back to the summer of 2021, or the spring and summer. Mm. Naomi Osaka obviously was the first to really bring up the issue of mental health and her struggles as she was, uh, you know, was having, uh, leaving tournaments during the summer, the, uh, the French Open. Uh, Michael Phelps, the great swimmer, has talked about, has written a book, has had a documentary about his struggles with mental health. If the great, wonderful, all-powerful Michael Phelps can tell us that he's struggling, well, then the NFL can also say, hey, we've got human beings here, as you said, Marcus, we need to address this. Or even and, Simone Biles well, opting not to compete, which was really the next even horizon. You took the words right out of my mouth because you, in that same summer, I mean, Phelps actually has been talking about this for a while, mm-hmm. but you have Naomi Osaka. Within a month or two, a couple months, you have the Simone Biles story at the, the time that the world is watching, the Tokyo right. Olympics. And she says, I can't compete. And so it took these incredibly strong athletes, world-renowned athletes, and so now the NFL is also dealing with this and saying, hey, we just, you know, the athletes, uh, the players union has been really strong on this. Athletes like Marcus, others speaking about this, Laura, and saying we have to focus on the mental health of these these giants uh, who also, by the way, are human beings. And Marcus, on that point, I mean, this is also a business as much as it's a sport. Mm-hmm. And the phrase, are you not entertained, comes mm-hmm. in my mind, right? And there is a big dollar sign attached to the priorities that a league will make to figure out how best to market it. And maybe that gladiator perception and persona is what sells tickets. But should there be a culture change to say, look, there is even a market case for why that's a good idea to focus on the whole player? Well, when you think about the player, you you want him to be successful in every which way possible. So if the league and the NFL wants the players to be successful mentally, physically, and spiritually, then they would do everything that it takes to get them the training, the life coaches, the mental health um, that they that they solely desire. And the work that I continue to do and the work that I continue to push forward for them is, well, you have players, right? The players, in in, in a sense... Like one player, I'm going to say this, one player, he was explaining why he was crying, right? He was explaining that. And as men, why do we have to explain why we weep? And so for me, I, I truly believe that we have to get to a point where we're not explaining that. And that's just us being men. And that's what a real man looks like. And so as players, we have to take us our manhood, put it on the football field, but also um, be human about it and, and do it that way. And I think if the NFL kind of looks at it that way, then I think it would be some some changes. And I, and I think it's going that way. And I, I really appreciate that for them doing that. Real quick, Christine, does the mighty dollar dictate more than and for this league what's going to happen next? Well, certainly, yes, except I think there's also the public pressure. Mm. And when you saw those coaches saying we can't keep the, you know, playing this game, that's, again, something, as you pointed out earlier, would never have been said maybe two or three years ago, certainly not five or ten years ago. And this idea of that the NFL player is much more than just this strong physical player, I think that's something that the NFL has to deal with. The nation, the world is saying you have to deal with the mental health of these athletes. Really important point from all of you. Thank you so much. Also, we are learning about one state that's passing a sweeping gun control bill today as legal challenges to another state's law is playing right out in the courts. We'll tell you where things stand and what Supreme Court justices are saying about all of it next. 
Well, the Supreme Court today allowing a New York state gun law that puts restrictions on carrying concealed firearms to remain in effect while a legal challenge plays out in the appeals court. That, as Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker signed legislation today introducing sweeping new measures that do everything from cap the sale of high-capacity magazines to expanding the power of state courts to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous individuals. Joining me now, CNN National Security Analyst Juliet Kayam and CNN Legal Analyst Elliot Williams. Now, just to break this down for people, I mean, last summer, the Supreme Court um, struck down the original New York conceal and carry law. Now it's being challenged again. How is it going to play out? Well, look, uh, they put a new law in place, in effect, following the Supreme Court's decision that, number one, um, sort of restricts where folks can have firearms in sensitive locations, churches, schools, parks, and so on. And number two, sets up a permitting scheme where Um, You know, in order to get a gun in the first place, these are the steps you have to go through. These are both a little bit controversial, only insofar as the Supreme Court cracked open the door last summer to saying, you know, these things might work in some ways, but we're not going to tell you exactly what's going to be okay. This is going back to the Supreme Court. I think it's hard to see how there's not going to be another legal fight over this. From a law enforcement perspective, I mean, the idea there is a challenge, the idea of not being able to ascertain a threat and who and understand and evaluate one. If everyone's able to conceal and carry, everyone was able to not be challenged, that poses a threat, right? Right. right. It, 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 there's the, law enforcement, the idea that law enforcement is sort of pro uh, no gun restrictions is ridiculous. I mean, in other words, the, the, the assault rifle ban, all of them were supported by legitimate police organizations uh, that understand that uh, if you're in a restaurant and uh, you think one person has a gun and another person has a gun and two people have concealed guns and there is an argument over a tip, Mm. that that is going to elevate relatively faster than something in which people are just going to use words and argue. So so this is the the amount of the number of states with concealed weapon uh, laws uh, is uh, historic in the number it is right now. So what you're seeing in terms of the counter in Pritzker uh, and New York is you're there. People are trying to figure out where is this middle that Elliot was talking about, which is the, the Supreme Court sort of left breadcrumbs right. in terms yeah. of what restrictions can be. Where's the middle? But there's also a political side to this, which is important. I don't want people to think that just because you're going to lose in court, it's over. Part of what this is about is to keep pushing uh, so that those who would defend, or as I would say, those who uh, who do not support reasonable gun legislation, for example, red flag laws, assault rifle ban, or, uh, or those things, are put on the defensive. And that's what you want, because that's the only way we're going to get movement. And I'm not talking about tomorrow, next month, or next year. You're going to get movement 5, 10, or 15 years ago. This is the same kind of strategy that we've done with other social movements uh, in this country, because it's not going to happen tomorrow with this court. There is the expectation, to her point, that the courts are going to be sort of the <laughs> panacea of everything. They're going to solve everything, yeah. and there's going to be a challenge, and suddenly we'll have have no more gun-related accidents, deaths, violent crimes. <laughs> this is a week, by the way, we're talking about a six-year-old having access yeah. to a gun and shooting his, I think, first-grade teacher. Um, there is the PR component about this, but there's also the expectation of what we expect of the Supreme Court. Is this the right way to go about this? Yeah, who knows? Look, the devil in any of these things is in the details. And even when you use a term like assault weapons ban, as is the case in Illinois yeah. right now, well, how do you define what an assault weapon is? And the Supreme Court certainly is going to tell you what that is. Now, Illinois says if it's a rifle that can be modified with uh, 
with a, a detachable magazine and has a pistol grip, and then there's like 58 different things that might define what an assault weapon is. Now, that might be legal. It might not. But, you know, the Supreme Court, even in folks wanting to sort of paint them as overwhelmingly conservative, they left open a lot of ground as to how to define all of these things. And it's actually a little bit chaotic right now in the state of the law as to what actually is going to survive and what's not. Now, again, um, certainly there's the ideological leanings of of, of the current Supreme Court. I'm not going to weigh in on any of that. But this is an open area of law that just hasn't been decided yet. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I think it's not yeah. any clearer than it was six months ago. And I think one way to look at this is someone who doesn't think about it in the legal context, but just in terms yeah. of sort of public safety and keeping children safer is part of this litigation strategy, part of what you're seeing these governors do or mayors or, or the kind of restrictions that you're seeing uh, put into place is to also begin a conversation again about what it means to be a gun owner and reasonable uh, gun ownership. So at the same time this is happening, we now have two cases against parents who clearly knew that their children should not have access to guns and helped their children get access to guns and ultimately resulted in deaths. That's good, right? In other words, that's the kind of of behavior that you want to begin to concentrate on, that parents are responsible for their children. If you think that your neighbor is dangerous, report them. So I'm it's not over, as Elliot says. There are different avenues of deterrence, right? The idea of it, it can't just be one branch of yeah. government that is determining everything. That's part of the balance of power and how it sits. So what will be the next steps? And, of course, talking about at the state level mm-hmm. as well as the federal level and what the courts will say about it. Really important yeah. points from all of you. We'll be right back. First Lady Dr. Jill Biden is back at the White House tonight after spending most of the day at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, where she had two cancerous lesions removed. The White House physician says Dr. Biden had successful surgery to remove a lesion above her right eye, which was recently discovered during a routine skin cancer checkup. The lesion was confirmed to be basal cell carcinoma. But during a preoperative consultation, doctors discovered an area of concern on the left side of the First Lady's chest. It was also successfully removed and confirmed to be basal cell carcinoma as well. The First Lady is said to be feeling well tonight. Well, thank you all for watching. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.